Hey everyone, uh, it's Ryan from the future. We had some technical difficulties on Sunday that caused us to drop the last few minutes of the sermon and the recording, and so uh, we wanted to be able to re-record that for you and provide that for you. So the audio is going to sound a little bit different towards the end, um, but just know we wanted to be able to provide this for you. Uh, I pray that God um, uses this sermon in your life to, to make you look more like Jesus as you listen to the preaching of his word. Hey everyone, uh, it's Ryan from the future. Uh, we had some technical difficulties on Sunday that caused us to drop the end of the sermon uh, in the recording, and so we wanted to be able to provide that for you, and so I'm going to re-record uh, the last few minutes of the sermon uh, so that that will be there. So the audio will probably sound a little bit different, uh, but just know we wanted to be able to provide that for you. I pray that God really uses this sermon in your life uh, as you listen now. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. If you're new with us, my name is Ryan Ross. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and uh, just really, really grateful that you're here with us this morning. Um, when you came in this morning, you should have received a handout with a Connect card on it. And so if you'll do us a big favor, if you'll fill out that Connect card, tear that off, uh, and then take that over to our Connect table. It's going to be on the other side of that pipe and drape after the gathering this morning. Uh, and we want to get connected with you as a church. We want you to know a little bit more about us. We want to know a little bit more about you. And so uh, we'll have some people over there to talk to you. That'd be a great way for you to figure out uh, how you can start serving on a service team, how you can get plugged into a community group, how you can begin to kind of fold your life deeper into Veritas Church and just learn more of what we were about. And so uh, feel free to take that over there after the gathering this morning. We're in a series walking through the book of Genesis, and so if you've got your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to spend our time together in Genesis chapter 4 this morning, and while you're turning there, let me kind of catch you up uh, on where we've been. And so we've seen God create everything out of nothing. He creates this really, really good world, and He gives it to us, to humanity, as a gift. He creates us, men and women, in His image to uh, have a relationship with Him and to represent Him in the earth, and He gives us a paradise to live in, a garden paradise where uh, we walked with him and we talked with him and we knew him intimately face to face. He gave us this good design to walk in, but what we saw uh, last week in Genesis 3 is that we rebelled against that. We thought that uh, we could find life and freedom outside of God and we needed to go outside of him to find those things. And so our first parents, Adam and Eve, brought sin, death, corruption, and curse into the world and what we have here in Genesis 4 is really our first picture of what life looks like east of Eden, outside of the garden, what life looks like in a world marked by sin and death and brokenness and curse. And I'm sorry to spoil it for you, but it's not pretty. Uh, it does not look good. There's a, a lot of heavy stuff here. And so I, I do want to warn you, I, I do think a lot of today is going to feel really, really heavy. And I think the text kind of lends itself to that. But once again, in that, God is not going to leave us without hope. And so uh, let's look at this together. We're going to work through the entire chapter, but let's start by just reading the first seven verses. And so starting in verse one, the very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So if you remember at the end of chapter 3, Adam names his wife Eve as an expression of faith and trust in this promise that God made that even though Adam and Eve brought death into the world, that death would not get the final word, that God would continue to preserve life, that he would bring this Savior that he has promised. And this is what we see God begin to do here. We, we get the first birth in human history as Eve gives birth to a son that they name Cain. Uh, after a little while, we don't know how long, how much time passed, she gives birth to another son that they name Abel. Uh, verse 2 tells us that Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer, which are both good jobs. Uh, and then in verse 3 is where things start to get interesting. It tells us that, that after the course of time, when, when Abel and Cain had grown up, they both bring an offering to the Lord, and the Lord has regard for, he accepts Abel's offering, but he, he doesn't accept Cain's offering. He has no regard for Cain's offering. Now, I, I think we've got to pull back here for a second and kind of ask the question, why God accepts uh, Cain, Abel's offering and not Cain's? Uh, you know, some people will say uh, that, that God didn't accept Cain's offering because it wasn't an animal, it wasn't a blood sacrifice, but I, I don't think that's what it is at all. Uh, I think the text tells us why he didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. Notice that it says that Cain brought an offering, while it says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, uh, for the firstborn of the flock would have been what was most costly and most important in, uh, in the flock that he had. And, and I don't know about you, how you like your steak, if you like a lot of fat on it or not. Uh, but back in this day, the fat portion of an animal would have been the kind of the delicacy, the most costly and most important. And so what we see here is that Abel is bringing God his first and his best, while Cain is just kind of going through the motions, bringing an offering. Uh, it's kind of like the scene in Christmas Vacation uh, where Catherine overcooks the Christmas turkey and they're all trying to eat it. And uh, it sounds like they're chewing on bones because it's so dry and overcooked. It's just hard as a rock. Uh, and so Ellen is picking up pieces of it with her fork, throwing it behind her head, and then putting the fork in her mouth, like acting like she's eating the turkey, right? She's just kind of going through the motions, acting like she's doing this because she knows she can't be rude and act like she's not going to eat the turkey. Well, well that's what Cain is doing here. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that Abel made this offering in faith to God, but Cain is just giving a token offering because he feels like that's what he's supposed to do. You see, the problem is not what Cain brought in his hands. The problem is what was in his heart. The, the token offering he brings and the response when God confronts him reveals that his offering was not made in faith like his brother's was. And now, I think what should scare us about this is that we might look a lot like Cain. I mean, notice here that Cain is not a bad guy, right? Like the text didn't say, well, Cain was out the night before getting drunk and doing drugs and sleeping around, and he rolled into this offering hungover and strung out, and that's why God didn't accept his offering. Like, no, it doesn't say any of that, right? Like Cain looks like a great guy on the outside, just as great of a guy as his brother Abel does. And on top of that, Cain's a religious guy, like, he's, he's showing up to church here. He's bringing an offering to God. He looks like a great religious guy. And so here's what we see from the earliest pages of the Bible from this story with Cain. God just is not interested in Sunday-only Christians. 
He is not interested in, well, I show up to church once or twice a month and I give a little bit of my money sometimes and so God should be happy with me and he should stay off my back and answer my prayers and do what I want him to do in my life. No, no, God is not interested in that. Listen, good actions that mean nothing if they don't come from a heart full of faith in God. Just going through the religious motions while your heart does not trust and does not love God is worthless, and God is not pleased with it. Listen, He doesn't need your money, and He doesn't need your time, and He doesn't need your church attendance. He wants your heart. And, and, and we see from the story of Cain here that you can do good things in a sinful way, and you can look great on the outside and still have a wicked heart, and that you might be able to fool everybody else in here, but you will not be able to fool God. You will not be able to trick your way into heaven by just going through the religious motions. God will not get to the end of your life. He will not look at your life and say, well, uh, he didn't love me. He didn't trust me. Honestly, he really didn't want to have anything to do with me, but uh, he went to church with some decent regularity and he didn't cheat on his wife. And so I, I guess we should let him in. Like, no, that's not how it's going to work. And this is why Cain gets so angry at the way God responds to this, because Cain's trying to play this game of if I go through the motions and throw God a few bucks every once in a while, he'll stay off my back and, and do for me what I want him to do for me. And listen, God is not going to play that game with you. And when he doesn't play that game with you, you're going to get angry at him because you feel like he's not holding up his end of the deal. Like, listen, I, I think we need to sit with this for a second if this is describing us. Do you get angry with God when things don't go your way? Man, if you do, it's a pretty good indication that you're relating to God based on your works and not based on faith. You're saying, you owe me, God. Uh, I've worked for you and you haven't paid me. Listen, God does not work that way. The only way to relate to God is based off of faith in what he has done, not based off to trying to earn things with our works. Like, Listen, and if this is describing you, if Cain's story, you find yourself here, and God has brought you here today to give you a chance to repent of this. Listen, even if you've been in church and you've been playing this game for years, maybe nobody else sees it, but you know it in your heart, and you can repent today. You can turn around. You can experience the grace of Jesus maybe for the first time like God is offering Cain to do here. But, but Cain is furious about this, and so God in his grace comes to him, and just like he did with his father Adam, he begins to kind of ask him some questions to try to draw him out to repentance. He says, Cain, why are you so angry and upset? Like, if you do well, won't you be accepted? Like, you, you can stop doing this and turn around. You don't have to keep going this way, Cain, but if you won't, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's against you. It wants to master you and rule over you, so you must rule over it. You must put a stop to it. Now, this is such a powerful metaphor that God uses here. God says, like, God says sin is like an animal crouching at your door, ready to pounce, and so you must put a stop to it. You must fight against it. Listen, the, the anger and the jealousy that's festering in Cain's heart right now is just going to keep growing and lead him to destroy himself and destroy others if he doesn't fight against it. And so God is saying, Cain, do you see what this anger is doing to you? Do you see what this is going to lead to? You've got to put a stop to this before it's too late. And, and listen, with this metaphor, I think God is really trying to warn us about the seriousness of our sin before it's too late. 
Because I, I think that so many of us think that sin is really kind of like a teething puppy. Like, you know, it, it may bite us, you may get a small cut or two, but it's not going to hurt too bad. Uh, we can play around with it and have fun and not be worried because at the end of the day, even if you get nipped a few times, like, you're still in control, right? You're still stronger than the puppy. You are the one who can choose whether or not uh, you want to engage with this puppy. That's not what sin is like. Sin is much more like a full-grown lion that will rip your head off. It is crouching at the door, ready to pounce. Sin, you cannot flirt around with it. You cannot play with it. You cannot toy with it and think that you're still in control. It will rip your head off. If you give it an inch, it will take a mile. Sin, it's not a joke and it's not a game. Sin is actively right now trying to destroy you. It, it, it doesn't just want you to, to sin, it wants to master you. It wants to rule over you. And listen, sin is not just something that we choose to do, we choose to sin, and then sin really becomes a power that begins to enslave us. Like, look, you are not strong, stronger than it. You are not smarter than it. You will not be able to maneuver your way out of the situation once you have found yourself in it. Sin is this serious. It's this destructive. It is crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And, and so since that's the case, I, th I think it would be helpful here for us to just pause and ask ourselves a few questions. And so first question, uh, what are your crouching sins? Like, what is on the verge of devouring you if you don't fight against it? So if I'm walking out to my car this morning after church and uh, somebody pulls up and says, hey, do you want to go rob a bank? I've got everything we need. You just got to get in the car and come with me. Uh, I'm not going to have to do the whole deliberation of, well, on the one hand, like, I really could stand to use some more money. That would be really cool. But on the other, like, disqualify myself from ministry, potentially end up in jail for a really long time. Like, I don't know. This is just such a tough decision to make. Like, no, I'm not going to have to deliberate about that at all. That's just not a temptation for me. I mean, this is just not a crouching sin in my life. But you know what is? Man, I, I love to be in control. I just struggle with worshiping this idol of being in control. And so when I get angry and frustrated about something, 99% of the time, it's because God is just shattering this illusion that the world revolves around me and that I'm in control of my life. And so when I get angry and frustrated, I've got to kind of pull back and kind of investigate that and get curious about that and like ask the question, why am I so angry about this? Why is this setting me off so bad? It's because of this sin in my heart, this idol that loves to worship control in my heart that if I don't fight against it, if I don't try to put a stop to it, it's just going to keep growing and keep festering and continue to get a greater and greater foothold in my life. And so what is it for you? Like, where is it, what are the specific sins in your life that you think you can flirt with a little bit and not come out with any scars? Where are you minimizing and downplaying the seriousness of sin in your life? Look, you've got to figure out what these are, the specific habitual ways that sin is going to get a foothold in your life and potentially master you and rule over you if you don't put a stop to it. And if you don't know where these spots are, you've got to ask people in your life who do so that you can know where these crouching sins are so that you can begin to fight against them. And that's uh, our second question. How are you fighting against your crouching sins? So if you know the places in your life where sin is crouching at the door, how are you fighting that? What steps are you taking to rule over that sin and not let it rule over you? Uh, John Owen said, we always have to be killing sin or it will be killing us. And so how do we do that? 
How do we fight and put to death and kill sin? Well, let me just lay out a few steps I think that all of us can take. One uh, is that you need to have a plan of attack. Like, what times of day and what places seem to stir up temptation the most for you? Where do you find yourself most prone to temptation and to giving in to this sin? If you know those places, what steps can you take to, to not be as vulnerable and, and fight against this? Like, is there someone you can call? Is there something else that you can do? Is there a way for you to stop putting yourself in situations that stir this temptation up? You've got to think of specific, practical ways that you can fight. Second, you need to gospel yourself. Uh, you, we can't just try to really hard to say no to sin. You have to say yes to something better. Now, I just apologize in advance. I feel like I've used this illustration probably three or four times here, um, and I promise one day I am going to get some new ones, but for now, uh, you're stuck with me. Uh, if you've spent any time here at all, I'm sure you know it's no secret that I have a deep affinity uh, for Bojangles. I really love Bojangles. I'm really one of the best evangelists they have, and unfortunately, they don't pay me for that. I need to look into that and see if that could happen. Uh, but I just love it. Like, I, I don't get tired of it. I don't get burned out on it. I, I just love to go all the time. But I think all of us know uh, that Bojangles is not really the healthiest option for you and that you, you probably shouldn't eat it all the time like I'm kind of prone to do. But if you were trying to get me to stop eating Bojangles and you gave me the option between Bojangles on one side and, and a salad on the other and, and let me choose between the two, like, I'm sorry, I'm going with Bojangles every time. Uh, it's just not going to be powerful enough to overcome it. But on the other hand, if you give me the option between Bojangles on one side and then on the other side, like this nice, juicy ribeye steak, and 10 out of 10 times, I'm going with the ribeye. Now, why? It's not because I magically stopped loving Bojangles, right? No, it's because I found a greater love than the love that I had for Bojangles, and that greater love drove out the love for Bojangles in my heart, right? It, it made me forget all about it. It drove it out. It just kind of swallowed it all up with this greater desire, and this is what we have to do. You've got to get your eyes on Jesus and let a growing desire for him drive out the desire for sin in your heart. Like we fight fire with fire. We don't just say no to sin. We say yes to Jesus. You fight a desire for sin with a greater desire for Jesus. So how are you getting your eyes on Jesus? How are you gospeling yourself? One way you do this is you've got to get in the Bible. Like even when it's boring, even when you feel like you're not getting anything out of it, you've got to get in the Bible and ask God to help you see Jesus and give you joy in Jesus and then second, I think you've got to preach to yourself. Listen, you realize that nobody talks to you more than you do, right? Every single one of us has that internal monologue that's just running through our heads all day long. Well, you've got to hijack that internal monologue and start preaching the gospel to yourself. You've got to start talking to yourself and reminding yourself of things like, man, God loves me. He is for me and he is not against me. Jesus loves me. He died for me. I stand fully forgiven and righteous in him. There is no condemnation that I will face. God delights in me, and, and that delight in me is not going to go up and down based on how well I perform today. Like, I am God's child. He loves me. He wants to talk to me. He wants me to talk to Him. He invites me into a relationship with Him. Like, if, if that sort of stuff begins to be the internal monologue when these temptations come, and more and more, the, the feeling and the drive that we've got to go outside of God to find life and happiness and freedom just isn't going to be 
as urgent. This is how we fight the lies and temptations of sin. We've got to day after day preach to ourselves and gospel ourselves. And then third, we need to have people who can hold us accountable. I think this is the third question. Who is holding you accountable and who knows about your crouching sins? Because listen, sin flourishes in the dark when no one else knows about it. But when we confess our sin and drag it into the light, sin begins to lose its power. And so who knows where you specifically struggle? Like, who in this church knows where it is that you're going to blow your life up if sin is left unchecked? Who can ask you the hard questions? Like, who in this church can get up in your face and say, listen, do you see where this is going to go? You're going to blow your life up. This is going to go bad for you. You've got to put a stop to this before this gets out of hand. And listen, I'm not just talking about what we would kind of think of as the big sins. Like if you doom scroll on social media for a couple hours every night, like if when you first discovered YouTube, you didn't work for three days, like you, you need somebody who can hold you accountable to that, right? You need somebody who can get in your face about that because Hebrews 3.13 says that we are supposed to exhort and encourage one another every single day so that none of us would be captured and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so who is it? in this church for you that can do that, that can hold you accountable. Look, if you don't have anyone, you've got to move in this direction as quickly as you can. You've got to find this in your community group or find this with someone here you've built a relationship with because sin is not a joke and sin is not a game. If it's left unchecked in our lives, it will absolutely destroy us. It'll destroy our lives. It'll destroy our families. It'll destroy our marriages. It's that serious. Sin starts in the heart, but what we see next in this text is that if we don't fight against it, it never stays there. It always spreads out to our hands and begins to play itself out in our actions. Pick up back in the text with me at verse 8. It says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God offers Cain this chance to repent. He says, If you do well, if you'll turn around, won't you be accepted? But Cain doesn't take it. Uh, and you can tell that this is premeditated murder, right? He, he comes up with this plan to get his brother Abel out into the field where he feels like no one will see it, no one will know about it, and he murders him. Like, we, we don't know how. Like, we don't know if he beat him to death with a shovel, he crushed his head in with a rock. I'm sorry to be a little bit graphic, but, but that's what's going on here. But, but what we do know is Cain murders his brother in cold blood and then buries the body thinking that he got away with it, that nobody is going to see it, no one's going to find out about it, that he gets away scot-free. But, but God comes to him and he says, where is Abel, your brother? 
Now, once again, just like last week, uh, when, when God's asking this question, he's not asking because he doesn't know and he's trying to figure out. If one of your kids hits another one and they start crying in the other room and you come in and you say, hey, why is your sister crying? You're not trying to figure out why she's crying. You know why she's try- crying. You're trying to get your kid to repent and confess. But, but Cain doesn't confess here. He lies about it and he says, I don't know where my brother is. Am I his keeper? Like, am, am I supposed to be his babysitter? Am I supposed to watch over him? He's a big boy. He can take care of himself. God, where were you on this? You're supposed to be watching over him. God responds and he says, Cain, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, telling me what you've done. And God begins to bring judgment on him. Remember, uh, in Genesis 3, God doesn't directly curse Adam and Eve. He curses the ground and he multiplies pain and childbearing. But here, he does directly curse Cain. He says, you will be cursed from the ground. The ground that opened itself up to receive your brother's blood, it took his side and it's going to make work even more miserable for you. You're going to have no place to stay on the earth. You're going to be a fugitive, fugitive and a wanderer, uh, which one person pointed out is really almost a faith that's worse than, worse than death because Cain is going to be rootless and detached. He's going to have no sense of identity, no sense of belonging to any sort of people or community. He's going to be a wanderer forever. And of course, Cain is upset about this, and he begins to complain about this, and he says, that's a greater punishment than I can deal with. I'll be a fugitive and a wanderer, and whoever finds me is going to kill me, which I find to be a pretty ironic statement, because you don't have to worry about somebody killing you in revenge if you don't kill your brother in the first place, right? Like, it's just kind of ridiculous how Cain is being here. But look at how God responds. I mean, this is just such grace, because Cain is unrepentant, and he's complaining about God's just judgment. Like, what, what leg does he have to stand on? He literally just murdered his brother, But instead of killing Cain, God says he will protect him and make sure that he would be completely avenged if somebody did something to him. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible, and God puts a mark on him so that Cain won't be attacked as he wanders about the earth. Now, people have speculated endlessly about what this mark was. One person said that it was a dog that would travel with Cain and would bark at people if they tried to attack him, which I thought was pretty imaginative and definitely not what this had to be. Uh, at the end of the day, like we just have no clue what this mark is. But what we do know uh, is that God is being incredibly gracious to somebody who does not deserve it and does not even want him. Like God is protecting Cain, even though Cain is unrepentant. God is a gracious God. And, and verse 16 tells us that Cain leaves the presence of the Lord. He goes out into exile and settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, nod means wandering, and so it's saying that the wanderer is settling in the land of wandering. He's just going to continue to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth uh, outside of the garden. And listen, this is where we find ourselves today as well, outside the garden, in exile, east of Eden. Because we are not able in this story, we are Cain. And look, I know I say that, and you think, like, you just talked about things that don't really tempt you, and I'm definitely not tempted to murder anybody in cold blood and bury their body. But look, 1 John 3 tells us that we should not be like Cain. It explicitly tells us that, which means that we do have the ability to be like Cain. Uh, It says that anybody who hates their brother or sister is a murderer. And, And Tim Keller really helped my thinking on this. He pointed out that whenever we build our identity on something other than God, We'll do whatever it takes to protect that identity. 
And we'll do whatever it takes to get rid of people that stand in the way and threaten that identity. I mean, think about it. If you build your identity on the approval of others, if someone slanders you or talks down on you or threatens your reputation by being more well-liked and accepted and respected than you, man, then you'll try to destroy their reputation. You'll cut them out of your life. You'll gossip about them. You'll manipulate situations to try to make them look foolish so that people won't take into account what they have to say about you. You'll say things like, they're crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. You shouldn't listen to them. If you build your identity on getting promoted and being recognized for your accomplishments at work, you'll run over anybody who gets in your way on the way to the top, won't you? I mean, you'll lie, you'll cheat, you'll cut corners, you'll do whatever it takes to take other people out of the running so that you will end up on top. And or, or think about how often somebody will just kind of fall headlong into sin and start chasing it, and, and people in their life will confront them about it, and instead of listening and repenting, they'll cut every voice of conviction out of their life to not have to uh, have a threat to this identity that they've built up. Listen, this is what sin will do in our lives if we don't fight against it. Sin starts in our hearts, it, it spreads out to our hands, and then finally in this text we see it begins to saturate culture and families. Look back at the text, verse 17. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mehujel, Mehujel fathered Methushel, Methushel fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of brawn and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. So here's a big question. Uh, where did Cain's wife come from? And the answer is, we don't know. Uh, the Bible just doesn't tell us. Moses doesn't seem concerned to tell us. It's just not his point here. Now, what we do know is that everyone in human history descended from Adam and Eve, that they are our first parents, and Genesis 5 is going to tell us that they had many other sons and daughters that aren't named in the Bible, and so most likely what we've got here is that this is one of Cain's sisters. Uh, this is condemned in the law at a later stage in the Bible, but here, uh, you got to do what you got to do. This is literally the only option uh, that they have on the earth. I think the fact that Cain is worried that somebody is going to kill him is a good indication that all the people on the earth at the time are his relatives uh, who would be avenging their relative Abel's blood. But we begin to get this genealogy of Cain's descendants, and it lists out some technological advancements they make, some advances in culture and society, uh, and I think this says some important things to us. They, they make some advancements in agriculture, uh, in arts and society, uh, in tools of bronze and iron and in music. And listen, these are good gifts of God. Like it is a good gift of God that we have modern medicine and air conditioning and refrigerators and dishwashers and microwaves and cars and airplanes. Those are gifts from God that men and women made in his image have made. And, and notice here, all these technological advancements come from sinners, right? Listen, this means that we don't have to avoid things that aren't specifically Christian. Look, I, I'm totally speculating here. I didn't look this up. I, I made this up. Uh, but the, the dude that invented the refrigerator could have been a, like a really wicked dude, 
right? He could have been a mob boss that was just offing people and not tipping when he goes to restaurants, like just a terrible guy. Uh, But even if he was just this awful, awful guy, that doesn't mean that we can't use refrigerators, right? Like every technological advancement in the world comes from sinners. Sinners make that. And, And so we can enjoy things like music and movies and the arts and cars and modern medicine as good gifts of God's common grace meant for all of us to enjoy. Now, yes, we need to use discernment. Like there are some TV shows and movies that you just shouldn't watch, but we don't say no to all of it. We enjoy it as a good gift of God's grace. Now, with that said, you have these kind of parallel tracks running in this genealogy. You have these great advances in culture and society and technology, and you also have these further advances into sin, and it's the same story in our society today. And we we have just these great technological advancements that people back in the day couldn't have even dreamed of. But unfortunately, right alongside that, like we've just found more creative ways to sin and express our wickedness. Right? We have things like computers in our pockets that allow us to, uh, through social media, connect with people literally all over the world whenever we want to. Uh, this great piece of technology, yet so often we use that technology to neglect the people that are right in front of us, and we're more starved for face-to-face relationship than ever. Like, we have these incredible means of transportation and getting anywhere in the world really quickly, and these are great gifts from God, and yet people have used these to uh, speed up and, and enhance the ability to traffic people and keep people in modern slavery. Like, sin just saturates our culture in our societies. And I think you see this advance into sin in this text even further uh, in verse 23. Look at verse 23. It says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What an awesome guy this dude is, right? Listen, if you refer to yourself in the third person and you say things like, hear me, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I have to say, you're a tool. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. I don't make the rules. I mean, this guy is something. He's just really high on himself, right? Lamech really enjoys himself some old Lamech. I mean, he thinks he is a really important guy. Lamech is the first polygamist in the Bible, something that's not being celebrated here, and he makes up a song bragging about his sin and his violence. Because when Cain murdered Abel and God confronted him, he at least lied about it, but Lamech is like, yeah, a little dweeb slapped me, so I put him six feet in the dirt, and if you so much as look at me the wrong way, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to end your life. Uh, Like, I'm a big man. I'm a tough guy. I'm Lamech. Hear me roar, you wives of Lamech. I mean, this dude is the inspiration for Grand Theft Auto, right? Dude, just running people over in his cars, getting out, punching people in the face. Just a wicked, wicked dude. Not only that, uh, he says if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech, still referring to himself in the third person, uh, is 77-fold. So if Cain's going to get complete vengeance, then I'll get a billion times more, is what he's saying. And, And think about it. Who promised to avenge Cain if somebody killed him? God did, right? And so what is Lamech saying here? He's saying he's tougher than God, that he'll get greater vengeance than God will. Like he's glorying in his violence. He's bragging about his wickedness. This is not something to be celebrated. This is something to be mourned. This is where sin gets us as a culture and as a people. 
and as a society. Like, listen, the idea of progress is a lie. You know, people will say so often, like, hey, just give us enough time as a society, and we'll work everything out, we'll figure things out, and we'll get on the right side of history. And listen, no, we won't. We don't get better as a society apart from Jesus over time. We're not better than these days. We'll look at things like this and say, oh, they're so primitive, and we're so enlightened. No, we're not better than these days. We slaughter people with guns every week. Mass shootings are up like crazy this year. We have to fear school shootings. We have to lock our doors. We have to have police presence. We marginalize people in our society and leave them in bone-crushing poverty. We have not improved from these days. We are just as wicked and as violent of a society as ever. This is where we're stuck apart from Jesus, east of Eden, in our sin and wickedness, running as hard as we can on the treadmill and getting nowhere, making no progress. And listen, I know that a lot of that has got to feel pretty heavy. I think by necessity, the text is trying to be heavy to show us the weight of our sin and what it will do in our lives. But as dark and as heavy as this text is, God does not leave us without hope. Sin is this destructive. It is this wicked. It is this devastating. But it can be defeated. And the only hope that we have that sin can be defeated is through the blood of of the seed. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so when it says offspring, the word is seed. That, that same word that was used in Genesis 3.15 when God promised that the seed of the woman, one of her offspring, was going to come and crush the head of the serpent and deal with sin. And so Eve is really expressing faith and hope that God would bring this seed, that he would keep his promise, that he would bring a Savior that will one day deal with all of this wickedness. And where Cain's line is famous for both their technological and societal advancements and their sin, Seth's line is famous for worship, for calling on the name of the Lord. The, the hope of salvation is going to continue through his line. And, and as dark as this chapter has been in showing us the seriousness of our sin and, and how destructive it is, I think there is great hope to be found here. Uh, and it's found in something we passed over earlier, verse 10, uh, where God says, your brother Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. God's saying it's crying out to be avenged. It's crying out for justice, crying out that Cain's sin should be paid for and judged and punished. And in that, the book of Hebrews says that Abel, though he died, continues to speak. And so in this, the blood of Abel continues to speak and continues to point beyond itself to blood that speaks a better word. Listen to the words of Hebrews 12, 24. It says that we, the people of God, those who believe in Jesus, have come to God on Mount Zion, to the assembly in heaven, in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, in Genesis 4, we really have the first foreshadowing of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus is the one that Abel always pointed to, the offspring promised all the way back here in these opening chapters of Genesis, because like Abel, Jesus was put to death even though he was innocent. Like Abel, Jesus was killed by his own brothers, by his kinsmen. And like Abel, Jesus' shed blood still cries out from the ground, but unlike Abel, Jesus' blood cries out a better word. 
because Abel's blood cries out for justice, demanding that Cain bear the judgment for his sin. But Jesus' blood cries out that mercy and full forgiveness is now available because justice for our sin has been satisfied at his cross. Jesus' blood cries out that it is finished for all who will believe in him. His blood cries out that our exile from God east of Eden is over. His blood speaks the better word that if you are trusting in him, you are free from sin and condemnation. It's a better word. And here's where our confidence in that better word lies. Our confidence is that Jesus' blood is not just crying out that mercy and forgiveness is available. Like Abel's, his blood is also crying out for justice. Hey, have you ever noticed in 1 John 1 verse 9, it says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's, that's not what I would expect that verse to say. I'd expect that verse to say if we confess our sins, God's faithful and merciful to cleanse us and forgive us in the sense that he just doesn't give us what we deserve, but, but that's not what it says. Right? It says God is faithful and just. And so why does it say that? Well, you know why it says that? It says that because Jesus, since Jesus has died for any and for all who would put their trust in him as our substitute in our place, since he lived the perfect life that we have not lived in our place, and then he died the death that we deserve to die for our sin in our place, and then he rose victoriously from the dead to defeat sin and death forever, it would now be unjust for God to punish us for sins that Jesus has already paid for. For God to ask for your blood after you've believed in Jesus would be to ask for payment twice. Everyone in here who trusts in Jesus has had all of their sins, past, present, and future, fully, freely, and forever forgiven. And so for God to judge and punish you for any of your sin would now be unjust because your debt has already been paid in full. This is the better word that Jesus' blood speaks. This is the good news that we fight against our sin with. This is how we stir up our hearts to know and trust that Jesus is better. And not only that, understanding this good news transforms us from being Cain's uh, to look more like our brother Jesus, the true and better Abel. Hey, have you ever noticed that Jesus takes up Lamech's taunt and turns it on his head on its head in the Gospels? In Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if somebody sins against me, how how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus tells him, no, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. You see, because of Jesus' work on the cross, instead of seeking, like Lamech, to be avenged 70 times seven, we can now forgive 70 times seven when people sin against us. Because now that what's most true about us is that we are Jesus' forever and we're fully secure in the identity and salvation that he's purchased for us, we can find the strength to forgive when people sin against us. Because now we don't need to live for the acceptance of others to be happy. We don't need to be recognized. And so now when someone sins against us, our identity and security isn't threatened and we can bless instead of curse. We can forgive instead of seek vengeance and we can leave vengeance up to God, the only one who knows how to handle it. Listen, this is what Jesus can do in us, really do in us. In a society marked by hatred and outrage and division where forgiveness is looked at as weakness and losing, we can lead the way as the church in being a people whose lives are marked by grace and forgiveness instead of bitterness and hatred and jealousy because there is blood that speaks a better word. The word of it is finished. Nothing left that you owe. Nothing left to pay for. You are Jesus' forever fully forgiven. Let's rest in that better word now.